Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. It's Bernard Hickey here. I'm the co-host of Fahoon, talking to you from an island in the Hauraki Gulf, while Peter is in Hoon Bay. Uh, Peter Bay, co-host of Fahoon, how are you? It's so good to see you. Well, I assume since you've got broadband that you're not on Rakino, because <laughs> I've been wondering about getting a batch on Rakino, and ever, everywhere I go, people say, you can't go to bloody Rakino, there's no power. And then I think, well, that might be just perfect, actually. Yeah, But how is it going over there? Now, look, I reckon that, so you've got those lovely palms behind you, which look very like Nikau, and I suspect that what my friend Ben Edgar, who lives in Nungaroo, who runs a gardening company, would call Kentia palms. But I think, well, I'm going to have to bring him over to do a, a botanical check on your beautiful palms. Yeah, they do look lovely. And I'm uh, really enjoying the bird life. You'll probably hear some bird life. And maybe if I'm really lucky, a kaka will swoop through the background. Yeah, I've, made, I've mainly seen kakas in that place that you were going to buy a place in. And the sort of south of Waiheke, down towards where John Spencer, had the toilet paper billionaire, had his place. You know, but that's where I've seen kaka before. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm very lucky. We're um, at a place where there's an awful lot of traffic in the mornings and evenings. On your little road, when you say an awful lot, I've been down, I've walked down your road. You mean there's like six cars every hour? No, no, uh, tra- when I say traffic, traffic of kaka. Oh, oh traffic, I said, yeah, yeah. That's gonna <laughs> so say that's going from one chunk of bush to another chunk of bush, they often do it in the morning and the evening. In Wellington, you see it between Zealandia and Mount Victoria. Yeah. And, and here, there's a couple of big bits bits of bush. So if we're really lucky, sometime between five and six o'clock, a series of kaka will go through the background screeching. Excellent. <laughs> now, Bernard, what are we going to deal with today? Because I, I don't know, I felt weirdly, I felt exhausted last week when we did the last one uh, on the Friday. And then we, when I say exhausted, I felt sort of psychically exhausted by trying to nut out what was going on in Israel and against Hamas and so on. And I feel even more that tonight. And the weird thing is, of course, one of my the part of my psychic uh, exhaustion of it is that I'm in New Zealand when I ought to be in London or Jerusalem working on this story. Mm. So we'll talk about that. What else are we going to talk about today? So we've got obviously the uh, election results and the fallout from that. We're going to be talking to Catherine Dyer shortly about what's happening with the climate. We've got a big new paper out of uh, Nature on what's happening with the Greenland ice shelf. Mm. More calls in Europe to ban cruise ships, and uh, we'll talk about methane, big issue for farmers here. Yep. And yep. Uh, and then of course we have uh, Rob Patman on, and uh, I hope Peter, we're able to talk about some of the the background to the awful conflict in Gaza. Yeah, just because I, I sent out, I think in that thing that you put you, you we cross posted and subtext, is because we sort of basically scratch each other's back, but. Rory Stewart from the from the Rest is Politics podcast did a very good sort of summation of where we've got why we've got where we are. So I thought I, I've written one, but I thought I'd asked our audience, would you like me just before we do Robert Patman and Robert will be there to do maybe sixty to ninety seconds on my take on how we got to where we are? Is that yeah? A, no, because what, what I find, I mean, if you're if if not that we have any listeners who are under thirty, um, or possibly under forty five, but you know, it's a really interesting problem about knowing the names, knowing the periods, knowing when these things happened. Because, you know, for me, you know, the end of the Ottoman Empire is is basically, you know, a, a news story in the in the Herald sitting on my father's lap. Yeah. And it's those pieces of history, the background, the nuance that uh, often gives you a sense of, of, you know, where, not where things might go, but at least why things might be happening. I will try to do this in a, in a non-sexist, um, non, uh, non-anti-Semitic way, certainly. Anyway, Catherine, it's getting a little warm in here, isn't it? Sure is. And it, including we're going to get Greenland is going to be green rather than white, it looks. Well, yes, it is looking a bit that way. There was a, an article out in Nature this week. Um, so at the moment, they're saying in this article that there are some signs or precursory signals of 
of what they call an impending critical transition, which is essentially saying they're approaching a tipping point. Um, and they're estimating that that tipping point will be reached when the global mean temperature gets somewhere between 1.7 and 2.3 degrees Celsius, um, which is not potentially too far off. If they were to collapse altogether, that's something like seven metres of sea level rise eventually, but th that happens over you know, a couple of hundred years or a few hundred years. And they're also saying, and this is the good news, is that if you overshoot those temperatures and then you manage to drag it back somehow by storing, you know, capturing um, carbon dioxide and storing it underground, then you can stop that whole transition to a new state of, of the ice sheet from happening. Um, you would still get, a, you know, a few levels, a few metres of sea level uh, rise, but you could stop it from going all the way. But that, of course, depends on can you capture carbon dioxide and store it underground? And another point I would add on to that is in the IPCC's pathways, the social, um, the political economic pathways that, that they have, the different pathways for going out into the future, all of those pathways that keep us below two degrees of warming by 2100 they all have some form of overshoot and mm -hmm. then we pull it back by storing stuff underground. So that's the current assumptions in, in a lot of our modelling, um, which some people call into question because at the moment we don't have any scaled up way that we know we can do that. And maybe we never will. Mm. So essentially, all of our current official plans rely on us effectively coming from behind in mm. the second half to win. Oh, and, which we're quite uh, good at, Bernard. Well, as, as we might see on Saturday night or whenever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the plans that keep us under two degrees. Yeah, and and that's that's the problem here because this paper, as uh, more and more research is saying, is showing that the tipping points seem to be quite close to mm. one and a half degrees, closer than maybe we thought previously, and so the the whole idea of keeping warming under one and a half degrees is to stay clear of these tipping points. If we now know that the tipping points might be closer to one and a half degrees, and this one suggests somewhere between 1.7 and 2.3, then, you know, we're playing with fire, so to speak. And uh, <laughs> sadly. And ice. <laughs> and ice, fire and ice. And this is the problem. We, we're essentially getting behind and we're getting closer to, you know, to losing. And uh, I, I do worry a bit about that. The other thing that I, I thought was interesting this week, Catherine, and this is a bit of a preview to something that we'll, we'll have on the Kaka next week, is you've had a look at um, the debate around methane in farming in New Zealand, and in particular, some comments around whether or not our farms are producing methane that further warms the planet and some debate between uh, people who've watched this closely. Can you give us a bit of a sneak preview? Yeah, so um, in the last week I've spoken to Professor David Frame and also to Simon Upton, who's the, um, the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment. And what I'm trying to do there and what we'll be putting out um, sometime next week, hopefully, is to try and divide out what does the science say and what are the decisions that are just based on your values or your political beliefs or what you think ought to happen going forward. And there's been a, a bit of confusion between those two things. You know, what does what, are, what does the science actually tell us and what does our decision-making based on, you know, what we say we want to achieve long-term and what, what we commit to the rest of the world that we're going to do, where does our political decision-making come into that? So that's, that's the bit that we're going to try and unwind and make it clearer for people so that they can have a better informed choice um, in that debate. Will they have a choice, though, Catherine? Do you think? Um, I, I just we also answer one question, which one of our audience, Catherine Rowan, asked, and and I think I know the answer to this, but it was the difference between or the importance of methane. My my recollection is that methane is a, sh a relatively short-lived but high-impact gas. Is that right? Yeah, it just it behaves very differently to CO two. So there's some estimations that up until today that methane has contributed some 40% of warming to today's temperatures. Okay, so historically it's contributed 40%. 
The thing with methane, though, is that it doesn't. It, it has a huge warming impact, but it mm-hmm. doesn't last in the atmosphere for very long. It kind of starts to degrade. It peaks about 12 years, degrades, or half of it's degraded after 12 years, and then it slowly disappears after that. But it does have... Um, some long-term warming effects, which can be modelled. Um, and there's some sort of new scientific, well, not completely new, but there have been some developments in terms of how we measure short-term gases versus how we measure long-term gases. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is, um, you know, there are very good reasons for treating the two differently. And there are very good reasons for trying to understand what impact they have and how you need to manage them going forward yeah. differently. So that's the stuff that we really kind of want to try and explain a bit better. Well, thank God we've elected, um, you know, um, Winston Peters, you know, the climate denialist to help us sort these problems out. No worries. <laughs> yeah. And probably, yeah. okay, my prediction, Nick Winston Peters will be foreign minister and he's going to have to go to all the COP conferences to try and negotiate New Zealand's future carbon thing. Well, the foreign minister doesn't usually do that. He will. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, this this is an interesting point, though. Uh, in, a, in a world where climate change negotiations will be one of the big things we have to do, and, you know, from a, from a, a local regional point of view, and Winston Peters can claim some credit for our Pacific reset uh, starting in 2018, for the Pacific, it's all about climate change. Mm. So having a climate change, we're not denying, but skeptic uh, foreign minister, or at least that's what he said during the election campaign, is not going to be fantastic. But I agree with you, Peter. I think there's a high chance that National will put Winston into that position as much to get him out of the country. Absolutely. As, as and also to, he's so pompous that it will, <laughs> it will suit him perfectly. And actually, like we've said before, he wasn't. But Catherine, one of our listeners, Alistair Sean, says that it's an excellent idea that you've had, in a sense, or a proposal to qualify the difference, quantify the difference between reality and political pie-in-the-sky ideas. I think that's another solutions journalism thing for the for the hickey Catherine Dyer axis to you know I don't you, you don't you don't generally do some data journalism but maybe we could do some some data journalism around that that you know a regular tracker a regular kaka tracker you could do a kaka tracker of <laughs> of methane of, ah. of the the ideas relative to the reality you know just like a reality ch- check thing going on could be quite interesting. Yeah, well, I have to say we got some fantastic graphs today from from Simon Upton from PCE, which we will definitely be linking to because they um, make the picture quite clear. I think. Yeah, no, that that is. Um, I, I I can't tell you how excited I am about those charts, and we're <laughs> yeah, looking too. forward to seeing them next week. Just finally, uh, Catherine, um, news on the cruise ship front where Europe is increasingly looking to ban these things from turning up in their harbours. Uh, one of the Dutch uh, ports has said no. What do we know now about these cruise ships and how how much of a factor they are in, in climate change? Yeah, there was a really interesting article in The Guardian about this today. And so what they were saying is that in Europe, there are some 218 cruise ships circling around mm. Europe. And those 218 cruise ships emit more than 14 times more sulfur oxides than the entire continent's cars combined. So all of the cars on the European continent. And sulfur dioxide, of course, is a really terrible pollutant. It's not just that it's a a greenhouse gas. It also is linked to cancer and cardiovascular and respiratory illnesses. Pollution in general is responsible for something like one in 10 deaths internationally each year. And so the healthcare costs associated with that are enormous. Yeah. And that's even before we start with norovirus on the cruise ships. That's right. Yeah. And also, <laughs> also bear in mind that these t- cruise ships, cruise ship companies don't actually pay a lot of tax in terms of mm. helping to solve those problems well, they're because they're all registered offshore. Yeah. So they're, they're creating a lot of externalities just in, yeah. in, you know, um, climate emissions and in healthcare, you know, to remediate some of the damage that's been done. Yeah, but where else would we send our old people when we're sick of them? Well, other than on a, a cruise, you know, this is a this is an interesting point though, because we we have this. Well, I have this vague idea that somehow cruise ships are not not quite as damaging as people jumping on planes. But when you what? look at ha- how people actually do cruising, often they jump on a plane to go on the cruise. And also, um, once they're cruising, they're using an awful lot of resources on the ship. And as we discover, the ships actually dock 
And then they run their engines while the whole um, caboodle are sitting there so that they can cook their four-course meals. And, and the electricity. Uh, and and generate electricity God, for the whole cruise socialism cruise ship. just... I really, really, I really wanted to do one one day the Concorde flight to New York, and then the trip back on the QE2 with Cunard. I just ah, thought that would be that was a deal? so cool. That was that was that was before I became an environmentalist socialist. But you know, yeah. wouldn't that have been cool? It would have been cool, except really hot, and that's yeah. the problem in the long run. If you live downtown near to the port. You should be aware of that. That's a lot of pollution that that comes from those ships just sitting there, you know, in the in the port. And uh, particularly if you have young kids or babies, I don't know that I would want to be living in an apartment downtown near the port for that reason. Mm. The good thing is none of those ships come to Dunedin because Dunedin is a is a sort of scary hellhole. Here's Robert. Great segue. <laughs> Th- thank you very much, Catherine. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Bernard. We're just shitting on the entire cruise ship industry. But I believe, I believe, Robert, that there is, in fact, because my, my former partner took it, a cruise ship that goes from, I think, Dunedin around to Fiordland, which, which in her case was a, an incredible sort of floating COVID hotspot. But it oh. does sound like a rather wonderful trip. But we've just shat on the entire cruise ship industry. Have you done a cruise? No, I haven't. No. Now, look, welcome. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Good. Lovely to see you, Robert. Um, what I'm Good hoping to, to hear um, this this week from yourself and from Peter is to get an understanding about what is going on in Gaza, what might happen next. And Peter, um, you've written an excellent piece for the spinoff that went, went out yesterday uh, about it. And I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more from yourself and from Robert about the background to this uh, conflict in Gaza. Yeah, so Robert, after having having said how wonderful Rory Stewart's thing was on the rest of politics, I wrote one myself today, which is asking <laughs> for gigantic trouble. May I read you, read you and the audience something that I wrote today? I'm not going to do it all, but I, and I'm going to try and skip a little bit. But this is Israel from the late 19th century. Zionist ideas gathered pace in the late 19th century with a couple of different streams. One was devoted to the idea of a shared state with Arabs. Another, strongly the view that Israel could not be shared and must be militarized. Britain gained Palestine as a League of Nations mandate after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. The Balfour Declaration in 1917 supported the creation of a Jewish homeland in the former Ottoman territories of the Holy Land. And it's also that declaration, particularly at the end of the First World War, is one of the origins of some of the anti-Semitic tropes around the Rothschilds. Britain struggled to contain Zionist terror groups right up to World War II. Many thousands of Jews joined the Zionist movement, fleeing post-World War II Europe and the Holocaust experience to insist on the creation of a Jewish state. Exodus, the Leon Uris book, and the movie were incredibly powerful, that whole plucky Israel post-World War II phenomenon. Israel was recognized in 1948, I understand first by Stalin, partly in an attempt to piss off the Americans. And this is Stalin, who also thought of a Jewish homeland in Crimea and Uganda. The Nakba followed fairly soon after the creation of Israel, which is the chaos and terror of, as Arabs see it, of being forced out to some extent from areas claimed by Zionist Israelis. And they were also urged by the surrounding Arab powers to leave. So they were kind of in a bit of a bind there. And that's also where you get this idea, which I stepped into today rather foolishly, that Zionism is somehow inherently colonial and has a connection to New Zealand and the Tangata Whenua in New Zealand. Of course, the difficulty is that both Palestinians and Jews are arguably indigenous to the country. Then in the 1967 war, the Six-Day War, more or less where the plucky Israel narrative starts. Uh, as Israel staged a preemptive attack, particularly against the Egyptian Air Force, destroying virtually all of it on the ground. It gained what is now Gaza and the Sinai Desert and the Golan Heights overlooking the Israeli border with Syria. Perhaps most lastingly, Israel took all of Jerusalem, took Jerusalem, which is, of course, the second holiest place in Islam and the holiest place to Jews and to Christians. The UN declarations which Israel defies are all about going back to the pre-1967 borders. 
Taking over what is now the West Bank occupied territories drove more Palestinians into Jordan, dramatically changing the political and demographic balance in the kingdom. It also left a legacy of refugee camps in Lebanon, of which more later. In 1973, Arab states staged their own preemptive strike against Israel, surprising the military and Golda Meir, the Prime Minister, much as the October 7 strike did last week or earlier this month. Israel ultimately fought back and triumphed, and a new hardline phase began to prevent Israel ever again being overrun by its neighbors, hostile neighbors. In the years since, Israel has become a porcupine, dangerous to threaten, and it's become an undeclared nuclear power. Having started to develop nuclear weapons secretly helped by France since 1967, and Golda Meir was said to have considered using nuclear weapons during the Yom Kippur hmm. conflict 50 years ago. Since then, we've had periodic conflicts, strikes into Syria, decades of terror attacks by the Palestinian Liberation Organization led by Yasser Arafat. In 1978, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli PM Menachem Begin previously branded a terrorist by the British during their period of occupation and a leader of the Stern Gang terror group under the British mandate in the 1930s and 40s. Begin signed the Camp David Accords, normalizing relations under which Israel handed back the Sinai Desert to Egypt, which is at the bottom of Gaza. Sadat was assassinated by hardline adherence to the Muslim Brotherhood in 1981. Israel and allies on the Christian minority in Lebanon expelled Arafat from Beirut in 1982 and presided over a massacre of Palestinians in two Beirut refugee camps, Sabra and Shatila. Then the amazing breakthrough in 1993, the Oslo Accords, after months of secret negotiations brokered by Norway, which, Robert, you will know, is a country very similar size to New Zealand and has a similar multilateral mm -hmm. view. Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin shook hands on the uh, White House lawn. Rabin was assassinated shortly after by an Israeli extremist, and in the process was finally, the, the process, the Oslo process, was killed more or less when Arafat unwisely backed Saddam Hussein over the Iraq war in 1991. Since then, 13 years of it under Netanyahu, Israel has built a containment surveillance state to control Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, controlling movement and all the while building more and more Jewish settlements in the occupied territories, fragmenting the already small parcel of land envisaged by Palestinians and the UN and Oslo Accords as a homeland. It's worth remembering that Gaza is not much bigger than Great Barrier Island. Israel is about the size of the Waikato, including Gaza and the occupied territories. The West Bank is much smaller than Taranaki. Palestinians in the occupied territories staged two intifadas in the 1990s, uprisings against Israeli control and occupation, creating chaos, bombings in major Israeli centers, and leading to the construction of walls to separate Palestinian and Jewish communities. In 2005, Hardline PM Ariel Sharon withdrew military and civilian settlements from Gaza, handing it over to the independent Palestinian administration under the command of Arafat's PLO, the Fatah group. Hamas, a hardline offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, expelled Fatah and won elections to run Gaza. Hamas and Fatah face off with Hamas running Gaza and Fatah, now known as the Palestinian Authority, running the occupied territories. That kind of leads us to now where there's little progress. And then I say, we can do this. This is, this is all part of my dissertation for you, for my future degree that you're going to grant me, hopefully. <laughs> Sounds like A material, please. Exactly. To his credit, Donald Trump, or really Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, created the Abraham Accords, a breakthrough agreement to normalize diplomatic relations between the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco and Israel. Joe Biden has capitalized on that until now with a bold attempt to get Saudi Arabia into that chain. Riyadh made an agreement with the Palestinians conditional on it normalizing relations with Israel, and Hamas has stepped in with the backing of Iran to effectively sabotage any possibility of an agreement, launching its attacks in southern Israel on October 7. And here we are. To go ahead. Your turn. <laughs> well, I couldn't possibly add to that, Peter. You left me speechless. Um, where do we go from here? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I did, and I think you probably did, have a look at President Biden's 
a nationwide address on his in the United States following his return from Israel, in which he said, uh, amongst other things, that America was now fighting two major threats from Putin. And he drew parallels, interestingly. He said that uh, uh, the common denominator between Putin and Hamas is they were both seeking to destroy liberal democracies, one being Ukraine, the other being Israel. What he left out of that equation was, of course, which is uh, quite clear to many people, I think, is that America is quite admirably backing uh, Ukrainians' bid for political self-determination in the face of an intended encroachment by an authoritarian government. But it has shown relatively little interest, despite a declaratory stance for a two-state mm. solution, in realizing the political self-determination of the Palestinians. And so I suspect, I don't know, uh, but I suspect that Mr. Biden's speech has not gone down particularly well amongst Palestinians because they see Mr. Biden as paying lip service to a two-state solution, but in fact, in, in substantive terms, uh, really backing one side of the equation. And that particular leadership at the moment, Mr. Netanyahu doesn't seem particularly interested in Palestinian statehood no. and has probably gone to extraordinary lengths to deny it. Yeah, because I think I think Robert, one of the things that I find so extraordinary, like I, I have had I've had experience of Netanyahu, you know, many many years as a as a journalist and watched him right since that 1991 Gulf War when the when Saddam was flicking um, Scud missiles across and Netanyahu kind of made his career actually by putting on a gas mask and on CNN live and uh, really over dramatizing it. Not that it wasn't a terrible thing to happen, but. He is almost, it seems to me, afraid, as afraid of normalization as Hamas. There's a weird connection between somebody like Netanyahu, who, th who thinks only of his political survival, it seems to me, and Hamas, who want to destroy anything good. Yes, I think that's true. But there's a question here, which Bernard raised, I think, in earlier communications about America's mm. position in the world. And I'm not sure. It's early days, but I'm not sure that Mr. Biden's response to this crisis has been sure-footed and in America's long-term mm. interest. And what I mean by that is there's been signs of real discontent uh, in the United States. 55 Democrats have indicated they do not go along with the line that Israel has the unreserved right to defense if it includes effectively collective punishment actually robert just let's let's just, could you just explain this issue of collective punishment because I, i'm not sure people quite get what that no. really means right let's just explain this um basically when the appalling hamas attack occurred on israel israel basically responded with a state of siege and cutting off water fuel uh, and electricity yeah, to uh, an already uh, besieged, uh, we should point out that the Gaza Strip has already been under a blockade for 17 years. That act meant that by definition, people who are not involved in the terror attack, namely the, the Palestinian population, are effectively being punished for being on the territory from which the terrorists operated. There's no love amongst many Palestinians for Hamas. Hamas did win the democratic election that you alluded to in 2006, mm -hmm. but they haven't had one since. And, uh, and are most unlikely to, but yeah. yeah. Yes, but the, the point is that what we've witnessed since then has been a massive bombardment of Gaza, which made little distinction in actual, I mean, what they're doing is dropping over 6,000 bombs in a complex, highly populated suburban area, and more than 3,000 Palestinian civilians have died, mm. including close to 1,000 children. Based on the information from Palestinian authorities who are controlled by Hamas, all of that stuff, just, you know, with the various health warnings. Well, no, not entirely. This is information that's coming out of Qatar and True. other Arab states and who have no love for Hamas. 
I think what we do know is an intensive bombardment's going on. A lot of people in, uh, uh, you know, uh, Gaza have not had any food or water for close to eight mm. days. So when we hear this term collective punishment, I think we're referring to the fact that Israel is directing its efforts, not just at Hamas, but the civilian population generally. That's the perception. And the president of Israel, not the prime minister. Herzog, who's the president, yeah. Yeah, that in his view, all Palestinians bore responsibility mm. for the attacks that occurred, which is an extraordinary thing to say because it would appear that if Mr. Netanyahu and his government were surprised and caught cold by the Hamas attack, it same could be said for the Palestinian population as a whole, who seem to be absolutely stunned, according mm. to journalists. But Robert, under under international law, what is the what is the consequence or the sort of because we, we we should do an entire session on collective punishment, genocide, what is and is not genocide, and what is war crimes? Yeah, well, uh, c- collective punishment, of course, was something used by the Nazis mm. in the thirties, and it would be not just thirties during the Second World War, uh, but. The point to note here is there is laws of war where where the culprits are supposed to be targeted, but not the civilian population. And that's and interestingly, in his speech at the Oval Office, Mr. Biden said he had reminded Mr. Netanyahu that Israel must obey the laws of war. He was referring to the fact that innocent Palestinians must not be targeted. But you see, for outside observers, that looks a bit late in the day. Mm. And so this is a very polarizing, difficult issue. But, you know, I cannot help thinking that Israel may have been better off in terms of international opinion to have declared war against Hamas and indicate that they would do everything possible to protect the Palestinian uh, population, civilian population, while targeting Mm. Hamas um, and not cutting off the civilian population from water, electricity, and food. I wonder. I wonder, Robert, uh, how the this conflict can can be contained now, uh, because the big concern is that um, Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, will will jump in, or yep. that Ir- Iran will intervene in some way, or that Israel will. Uh, do something preemptively against Iran. What are the next things to watch for? And in particular, I'm thinking of um, this um, ground invasion, which has been talked about, but I haven't quite seen it yet. I just wonder how can we cont- Well, how can it be contained? Well, the ground invasion hasn't, as far as I know, occurred yet, um, and it looks like it's imminent. Iran has made threatening noises. The foreign minister indicated that if the situation continues to escalate, which I, if decoded means if Israel goes ahead with its ground offensive, then there could be a preemptive intervention by forces that Iran supports, which I think, again, decoded means Hezbollah. But it could mean Iran itself. So it, it's a very worrying situation at the moment, and, and uh, it could easily escalate, yes. And uh, I think America is fully committed, uh, by judging by Mr. Biden's statements. And w- one of the ironies about this situation, of course, is that, in a sense, you get the feeling that uh, Mr. Netanyahu has kind of played into the hands of those who want to escalate on the Iranian side. And that's the worrying thing for me, that, yeah. um, you, in, in a sense, if he makes good his his pledge. No, you don't know he will. But he, if he makes good in his pledge to reduce Gaza to rubble or desert, he said, and there's a lot of very controversial incidents happening on a daily basis. Witness the attack on the UN building and also the, the hospital where there's been competing narratives about. It seems to me that this is a very explosive situation where I, I think the Iranians are totally cynical about the Palestinians. I don't think they care about the Palestinians, but they do have regional ambitions, and they do see the Palestinians as a possible vehicle for promoting those ambitions. And so they may believe that 
if uh, we just don't know because it's all speculation, but we cannot rule out the possibility that a further escalation in Gaza will bring um, perhaps Hezbollah or Iran. Yeah, and the difficulty, Robert, with mm. with Hezbollah is that they're now desperate to seem relevant. You know, they and yeah. I just I, I we could another do another. I was just looking at something about Lebanon today, and Lebanon really is a failed state, particularly after that explosion. Yeah, which is uh, a tragedy. A couple of years ago, yeah. I, I you you wrote to me something this week after I sent you my um, my thing on spinoff, um, essentially declining my uh, honorary degree because I was being too optimistic about the possibility <laughs> that that Biden would actually be holding Netanyahu by the testicles while hugging him, because and and I the trouble is you're in a what a graphic in, image. In a, yeah, I think it's yeah. actually I might even the the um. Uh, there, there was a very good piece in the Atlantic this week about the hug Bibi strategy because, you know, Obama pushed Bibi away because he was an untrustworthy lying ratbag. Um, Biden has reassured him of almost unlimited support, but we also know that Biden really cares about that normalization idea. As foreign as that might seem, as amazing as that might seem now, you know, it it, it took a Sharon to pull out of Gaza. It took a Menachem Begin to do the Camp David Agreement, and it took a Yitzhak Rabin to do the mm. Oslo Accords. Is there even a sliver of light here that it can lead to something bolder if if Biden does have that intent? I think Mr. Biden may be hoping so. And don't forget, he's also mindful, and I'm not trying to sound too cynical here, but he is mindful he's facing election mm. next year. And uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, you're quite right when you say sometimes you have to be a bit of a hardliner to make quite dramatic concessions in situations like this. But there's been nothing in Mr. Netanyahu's track record that suggests that he's going to make those sort of no, concessions. No. And the other thing is, Mr. Netanyahu doesn't always play by American rules. Exactly. He's certainly happy to accept American support. But I think Mr. Biden is taking a calculated risk here. A rather large risk, because well, did you see his announcement tonight saying he needs billions more from a Congress that is already at at yeah? Know, it's it's a very risky strategy, and also he sounded to me like about three hundred years old in almost everything he said in in Israel. So, jo Josie, what are you what are you thinking about this? I mean, I, it, I've read something recently. I think it was today that. The fact that Biden went, that Rishi Sunak's going, is is maybe the reason why the ground offensive hasn't started yeah. yet. And so I think, and actually, Peter, I think I think your your little summary of hope um, has some merit. That that if we can, if Biden's visit has somehow delayed the ground offensive, which is a recipe for disaster, just as you outlined, Robert. I mean, what do they do if they win? I mean, yeah. they decapitate. Hamas as the leadership of Gaza, and then what? You know, and I think one of the messages that Biden managed to get across was, "Don't do what we did in Iraq." Mm. And he did, yeah, he, and, and that was that was an amazing acknowledgement, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and you can militarily win, but you can't win, you know, hearts and minds. It's just not going to work. So, I, I think there's some merit in your analysis, Peter, that this might be the big, perhaps the best hope we've ever had in the last. 50-odd years of, of a two-state solution. Just one thing, though, did you realise, you said Biden was sounded about 300 years old. He last sat in, a, in an Israeli prime minister's office 50 years ago with uh, Golda, the, the, the prime really? minister at the wow. time, the president, yeah, prime minister at the time. <laughs> so quite incredible. Yeah, how amazing. Well, also, a, a US president has only gone into a uh, country at war twice, and both of them were Biden. So I, 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 mm. I'm not saying, you know, 300 years old is bad. I would vote for a 300-year-old person rather than a 78-year-old 70, uh, Trump, but uh, not that I have a vote in the US anymore. But Josie, that, that's such an interesting question, So, because uh, that is a really interesting idea that they have delayed it. Because, you know, yeah. Netanyahu tries to be a man of action, and he, you know, it, it is this kind of action is so grotesque. But also, I think, I mean, I haven't seen any internal polling for, for Netanyahu's support, but the, the, the general... Uh, analysis seems to be this isn't going to benefit him actually that he doesn't look tough and strong and he's always managed to get by on that because it was such a spectacular failure of security mm, mm. that Hamas got a came across the border with no one noticing yeah but there is another interpretation here Peter and I'm not knocking the the hopeful interpretation I hope you're right 
And that is um, that from an Arab perspective, Hamas's uh, appalling terror attacks on Israel have effectively destroyed the normalization Mm -hmm. process with the Abraham Accords, or not destroyed it, but certainly harmed it. I mean, as we all know that Mr. Biden wasn't able to meet with Mr. Abbas or the Jordanian leadership or that of the Egyptian leadership because they believe that America is wrong to give Israel a blanket Mm -hmm. support for what they see as the disproportionate retaliation. And so I'm not sure how much hope there is beyond a Western perspective. And from an Arab point of view, the other thing that concerns me is that America's credibility, I mean, vetoing the humanitarian Mm. pause resolution has caused a lot of anger around the world. And um, what has worked in Mr. Biden's favor is that Europe took a pretty similar line to the United States at the beginning of this crisis, which came as a bit of a surprise to many of us. Um, Ursula von der Leyen Mm. um, really was quite fierce in her condemnation. The EU has been quite supportive of the Palestinians' quest for self-determination, although they've been reluctant to play an active hands-on role. But... It's it, it you know I, I mean I hope the hopeful interpretation comes through, but from a Palestinian point of view, with their civilians in Gaza suffering, with the terrible unrest that's going on in the West Bank, mm. a number of large number of Palestinians have been killed in protests over the bombardment of Gaza. Uh, these pr- uh, people killed in 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 the West Bank, uh, and and uh, the Palestinian Authority seems to be losing control of the situation there. So it. it this, you know, it, it's there is also a gloomy outlook as well. Robert, can can, can I ask you an international law question? Um, because you know the collective responsibility you were talking about before. I mean, that's not recognised in any international law, right? That's not a that's not a rule of no, war. No, but there are laws of war and just war and what's called disproportionate yes. responses. So proportionate response. But isn't one of the issues in Gaza, one of the tragic issues, is that so the way that, I, that as I understand it, um, civilian deaths are measured is that if, those civil, if civilians have been targeted or accidentally hit in an area, but if they're in a military area, so a hospital is in a military area, of course, but the problem we've got in Gaza is that this practice of Hamas sort of hiding in civilian areas the international law bit of that gets a bit murky, that if you've got the head... Oh, yeah. There have yeah. been cases where the headquarters of Hamas, they have set up in a hospital as a way of, of protecting themselves under international law, I suppose. But then it becomes murky if you're targeting civilian areas, but you can justify it by saying it's a military base or yeah, something. Yeah, th- there is enormous uh, murkiness there, but I think it was from the outset, I think many people, many international lawyers were very concerned that Israel was not specifically targeting Hamas and pr- promising protection for civilians. And they're asking, I mean, to ask 1.2 million. Yes, I was just going to say, to move. <laughs> yeah. And even now, there's really hard bargaining about allowing 20 humanitarian trucks in. Josie, may I ask you, uh, well, both of you really, and Bernard, uh, I find the way this is being played out in New Zealand and public quite difficult and uncomfortable. How do you think the media in New Zealand or New Zealand people can, because the, you know you've seen in the UK, you've seen in various places a, a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism, and what you and also in the UK in particular a tremendous rise in anti-Muslim slogans and behaviour. Mm-hmm. We've seen from the people you know in Christchurch that they've detected, uh, you know, related to the mosque killings, an increase in, in anti-Muslim anti, uh, activity. How can we deal with this remotely? And also without holding every Jewish person in New Zealand responsible for the actions of Israel or every Muslim person responsible for the actions of Hamas. Look, it's been really awful overseas. I mean, you've had stories in the UK where um, you've got Jewish schools that have either closed or they've got extra security, Jewish kids being told not to, you know, to to cover up their um, anything that identifies them as Jewish. Um, and and as you say, you know the opposite happens as well. And so how you avoid that, I think, is by having exactly the kind of little 
preview you just did then, Peter, where you go, right, let's have a look at the history of this. Let's have a look at why we've, how we've got here. What are the issues here? I think the last thing you do in a country like New Zealand, where we feel very far away from this and we feel quite ignorant of it, I think most people are just struggling to get their heads around it. The last thing you do is shut down debate mm -hmm. about it. And I think there's a, there's a tendency in the media to go, oof, we're in New Zealand, we don't know enough don't talk about it. But actually, you know, then you suddenly get these random mm -hmm. views like uh, Israel are the col colonisers and you go, uh, you know, that that's an ignorant statement to make. You can, you can condemn um, uh, uh, powerful states in cro um, at undermining the rights of another state, a poorer, smaller state next door and the inability of, of the government of Benjamin Netanyahu to... Uh, recognise a two-state solution. You can do all of that without using the C word, you know, colonisation, because it just doesn't stack mm. up historically. So you've got to keep talking about it. Otherwise, we're going to just have random views that come up that uh, that you can't then mm. push back on That, that because a, a, a statement like that creates such um, unease and anger in one part of the community. But this, I mean, we may be geographically distant, but we are definitely affected by what's happening. There's a there's a worrying polarization here that someone called David Rothkopf Rothkopf from from the HRW yeah yeah and he said he at the moment in the United States at least he was referring in, in, in to the US case that he was saying that people sometimes who have been critical of Netanyahu are branded as racist and anti-Semitist mm. and anti-Semite and they, he said this is completely wrong and. Uh, you know, and I, it, it, it is a very polarizing situation, and you have to tread very carefully. There's a, you mentioned, uh, Peter, the podcast, you know, The Rest mm. is Politics, the Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell. They did a really great interview with uh, Yuval Hariri. I thought he articulated really carefully and eloquently that he is a liberal center left wing Jew in Israel who has fought against the government of Benjamin Netanyahu, as have reservists exactly. and soldiers in Israel who were protesting in huge numbers against this government. Um, and the kibbutzes that were hit by Hamas, the tragedy of this is that they were liberal left-wing mm -hmm. kibbutzes mm -hmm. who, you know, have, you think you talked about it last time, kite festivals between Gaza and, and, and Israel and believe in peace. And, you know, so it's possible, as you say, Robert, you've got to be able to criticise the government without it being anti-Semitic. But you have to also be very careful that you're not saying that the state of Israel doesn't have a right to exist and they're colonisers. I don't think one should say that at all. And I think the, the tragedy of the situation at the moment is that we all know there's very good Palestinians and there's very good Israelis who want to work as people in both communities who mm. see a future of two states living peacefully side by side. But unfortunately, at, at the moment, we're in a situation where extremists in both societies have got quite a lot of influence. Absolutely. Most Palestinians hate Hamas, that yes. they are widely disliked, but they have no control over yeah. their lives. They don't live in a democracy as such, and they spend most of their life trying to get enough food. 80% uh, of civilians in Gaza are dependent on food aid. The, the dynamism, as we all know, of Israeli democracy, you know, one of the reasons that it's even more complicated than our EMMP system is because you have the most incredibly dynamic uh, democracy arguments everywhere. You know, it is an argumentative country and an argumentative people. And, and I think one of the great things that I've read and heard, and they're all available there, is this, uh, the people of many, many of the people in those kibbutzim some of the people who survived the awful attack on the concert essentially say, we do not want this to be taken out on the people of Gaza. We want Netanyahu to go as soon as possible. But first, there has to be defense. We have to reestablish defense. And one of the most remarkable ones was the, was the diplomatic reporter from, from Haaretz, whose uh, father rescued him and his family. His father was a former general, I think, in the IDF. Father turned up, you know, volunteered, came and rescued them from their own strong room. And the reporter just said, you know, I'm very grateful for my dad. Now I have to get on to criticizing Netanyahu. You know, it's a it's a dynamic mm. 
an open democracy, which Hamas is not. We could end on a on a hopeful note: the election in Poland, which um, ah, was yeah. <laughs> quite remarkable, yeah. and proves this is where the uh, centre right um, candidate. Uh, Tusk, who was, of course, he was the EU. I can't remember what his role was at the EU. But my stepmother is Polish, and um, my my step-grandfather was a minister um, uh, before the communists came in. He was a, a minister of construction in the government, and he mm. had his construction company basically um, nationalised by mm-hmm. the communists, and so they made him the minister of construction under the communists. And my stepmother was a political refugee in America. So she goes back to Poland regularly now, went back for this election, um, and she said it was amazing. Like, she she managed to vote. 73% turnout, huge mm-hmm. turnout. That's a bigger turnout than after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So wow. there was a real push that proves that autocratic populism can be defeated. And, and you know, the one thing I would say about this is how did it happen? How did he manage to do this? And it's a coalition of a centre-right, centre-left party now, mm. uh, two, two, two parties or three parties, I think, um, which shows that those in the centre can defeat populism. And the secret to it was a very strong local civic society, local government and civic society maintained its um, links to the community, its its communication, its delivery mm-hmm. of services. So they managed to kind of have a fight back from the grassroots up, which I think is a really good lesson for any any of us to learn about how you fight against populism. Um, you 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 know you go you devolve, you go as local as possible, and you you work in the communities step by step. Let, let's also remember, Josie, and I, I think we know which not not that we have sides in this, but you know, law and justice was democratic democratically elected. There are a lot of Polish people who supported its views on abortion. It then also did, a, and, and other things, it also did a brilliant job mm. of tampering with the judiciary, tampering with the media. I was going you know, to say, yes, it wasn't a free and free and fair election. Yeah, mm. well, to some extent. But just I just think we have to be, because I was thinking about this today, you know, I consider myself to be a lower, lower P progressive because progress is inevitable and essential in a sense that, mm. you know, we don't, you know, despite me being a dad, dad and having dad jokes, I don't, I'm not static, <laughs> but some people do prefer static and they do prefer to go back to a period that may never have existed. So, you know, it, I mm. think that Tusk thing is so interesting and I, I adore Poland and it is, you know, a beacon for me of, of many things, but, you know, a lot of people still voted, I mean, law and justice was still the biggest party in that election. Thirty-five percent. You're right, and mm. and um, Tusk's party civil platform got got about thirty percent. But but under the system, they can form a government. And you're right. I mean, you say you could say the same about Donald Trump too, Peter. And I would. And I have family members in the states who voted for Donald Trump, mm. and I still mm. love them. Christ, some of them voted for some of the ones here voted for, for voted for um, Winston. And you've got some very odd family. Yeah. Actually, actually, that's not true. We all do, and I do too. <laughs> Downwardly mobile yeah, middle yeah. class heading fast back to working class. It'd be interesting to know whether had Poland had uh, implications for Hungary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. We, but yeah. then we just got mm. Slovakia. Now, Bernard, they want some information about New Zealand. Now, I thought Patrick Smelly wrote a brilliant piece, which because I was yelling at the radio yesterday with the use of this word "secret" to describe the coalition talks, which essentially was oh, a yeah. private would have been a much better word. This is what happens during the middle of summer when not much is happening. Um, uh, Sometimes the media jumps in and fills it with smoke. And in this case, it's it's a horrible situation because I've been there in Parliament where you have this uh, interregnum between the election and the actual formation of the government where, understandably, parties, A, they haven't had the negotiation yet, they don't really know what chips they've got to play with because they don't have the final results from the specials and they do change. Mm. So in the meantime, you've got journalists um, doorstepping people at the airport, um, outside the front door of parliament, and it all gets a bit silly. And so I'd quite, Mm -hmm. sometimes I think we should have like a period after an election and before the special votes oh, are counted. Oh, we go to Perda after the election rather than before the budget. That's a very good idea. Exactly. So so immediately, you know, after the initial results are declared, and then we'll go away on holiday for like three weeks. And mm. the, the beginning of the start of the 
the discussion is when the specials are counted on November the 3rd, we'll come back from a long holiday because we deserve it after a tough campaign. And then we start reporting again and we, we avoid all this nuttiness in the middle. Yeah, I totally agree, Bernard. It's just, it's ridiculous, really. And I think actually Christopher Luxon has managed to look quite statesmanlike um, during this because, you, I mean, it's a different situation. You haven't got, uh, um, in the past, we've had Winston Peters who we're waiting to see who he's picking and and he's the one who's calling all the shots. And so he's the one that the media are going after. Whereas this Christopher Luxon just keeps saying, um, I'm not going to talk about this in, 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 the, in public until we've talked about it privately. So, and I think most of us, I mean, even, even I'm sick of it. I don't, you know, I can't, it's two <laughs> weeks of this to go before the special votes get counted. So we've got like about, what is it, 560,000 or something special votes of which 15, only 15% are overseas votes. So the chances are, the most likely scenario is that National will lose a seat. Um, but the interesting thing I think about doing the numbers is National's kind of a victim of its own mm-hmm. success, really. It's, it's won 50 seats. Uh, 50 seats in Parliament, of which 45 are electorates, which means it was ah, only, yeah. um, I think, about, was it five on their list who've got in? I mean, so if they if they do well in the specials, they're going to possibly lose the likes of Jerry Brownlee. Um, if they lose some seats, that'll actually be quite good for them on the list, at least, because they'll get people, um, you know, good people like Agnes Lohini, who's, who's um, you know, a very strong Pacific advocate in the National Party. Um, they they really want people like James Christmas, who's a who's a, a lawyer. Who they mm. they were, they had him mm-hmm. tagged to go into straight into cabinet as um, I think treaty minister. So yes, it, that's it's interesting to watch how it all falls out. But we've got wow. two weeks till the specials, and I don't think I can talk mm. about it for another mm. two weeks. No, <laughs> you're no, right. No. This. <laughs> so, so, so what I d- just to end on, I think um, I wanted to congratulate you, Josie, for your column this week which actually looked at the issue of quality of government spending and how a new national-led government is actually going to improve it and went to the the extent, and this is where I wanted to tie it all together, of talking about allowing people closer to the local level to make decisions. And um, you mentioned the uh, Polish result and how actually having devolved yeah. power was a good thing. And one of the mistakes I think Labour have made over the last six years is to do a lot of centralisation and to take some of those decisions away from the grassroots and from smaller uh, towns and cities. And people felt like it was being centralised in Wellington. And I think if if National are going to win some of that those regions back properly... And also, a lot of provincial towns, um, they need to avoid the centralisation instinct, which is very strong in Wellington, and National has been guilty of it as well in the past, I think. What do we we think of the managerial approach that we keep hearing about of Chris Luxon's, that he wants to be a sort of Prime Minister Chief Executive? Is that going to fly, Josie? Yeah. No, uh, but but I think if he can do a sort of John Key and get the best out of his ministers, if that, then that's presumably what he means by, you know, I'm used to getting the best out of my team, I'm a good manager, fine. But Bernard, I think you've, you're spot on, um, that it, it, I think they've really got to have some big ideas. We didn't see any big ideas in the campaign from either party, and that's part of the problem. And one of those is devolution. And you're right, Labour was far too centralised. I think devolution is a really lefty idea, but in New Zealand it's been captured by the right. Bill English was was very committed to um, devolution, to, 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 you know, targeted social investment in communities and devolving away from from. Wellington bureaucracy. Um, so it's interesting that in other countries it's the, mm. it's the opposite. It's a left issue. But I, but I think given their, sense, their vulnerability around treaty stuff, that they look like a bunch of white guys in blue suits at the moment, even though that's not fair representation of the entire caucus, I know. But if, if they want to, they've got to have some big ideas about how they devolve to Māori communities, to local community, to community generally. If they can keep that Bill English idea going, if they can bring that back and kind of double down on it, I think that we'll look at them and go, okay, so you are actually doing mm. things differently and you are prepared to share power with community groups, and that includes Māori and iwi organisations too. Mm. 
Well, now, let me just do the skateboarding dog because the skateboarding dog story is the fantastic one of the Polish shoplifter who snuck into a department store and hid in the front window of the department store pretending to be a mannequin. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And he managed to stay in there after closing time, go around, steal a whole bunch of things, including jewellery, and then leave. He, he deserves did, I, it. I think he deserves it. And then it said uh, there was, was a fantastic. He ate his. He also had done it previously, uh, going into a shopping centre just out of its, after it had closed and eating everything in the food hall. His his luck finally ran out when he was spotted and held by security. But the picture on the Guardian is fantastic. He was a 22 year old accused of stealing jewellery after posing as a display dummy. <laughs> he was a real dummy and not just a mannequin. <laughs> Goodbye. It's enough dad jokes. Thank you very much, everyone. Kakita and Thank you. Thanks, guys. See you, Josie. You are totally fabulous. Bye-bye. Bye. All righty. Catch you. Bye-bye.